Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the observation of International Women's Day is meant to honor women's lives and remind us of issues of gender inequity around the world. Seattleites celebrated this year with a gathering of women who strive to balance those scales every day. The event included Martha Adams, the producer of the film Girl Rising. Everyone benefits when you educate girls. And yet, there's 130 million girls missing from classrooms today. Martha Adams was just one of a powerful group of women who gathered to discuss prospects for bold change on International Women's Day. They met at Town Hall Seattle on March 8th. Here, moderator Jerry Andrews introduces the event. So why are we here? We're here to celebrate women, and we're here to have some fun, and we're here to talk about both the past and the future, and what we need to do next. And we've got some amazing women. You guys are going to hear from some folks about the real history of women, which sometimes gets lost in the other history. Uh, you'll meet an incredible WSOS scholar who will facilitate a panel with amazing panelists from around the Seattle area. We'll talk uh, in depth about a project called Girl Rising, and Girl Rising uh, is, a, uh, is an organization that films empowerment throughout the world and in some of the most difficult areas, really. So I think, th I think you'll be blown away if you don't already know. Who already knows uh, uh, about Girl Rising? Raise your hands. Okay, cool. So a lot of people do, and a lot of people don't. You're going to find out a lot more about that today. All right, we felt that it would be appropriate to start with a short talk about the real history of women. And there is no one else that I can imagine that could do a better job of telling you the real history of women than the incredibly smart, capable, beautiful, lovely, charismatic woman to my left. And that is Dr. Devin Atchison. Now that is, that is what I want to hear, you guys. All right. So, Devin, thank you for being here. Uh, Dr. Devin Atchison is a part-time faculty member at Bellevue College, as well as the board chair of the Making Connections Advisory Board. She serves as a mentor for WSOS, which we'll talk about a lot today, and gives talks around the Puget Sound region about women's history and American history. However, most importantly, she's a badass. She's amazing, and you're going to love her. Thank you, Jerry, and thank all of you guys for being here tonight. My heart is racing. I'm not sure if you can hear it right now. Um, that was quite an introduction and a lot to live up to. Uh, so when Jerry and WSOS asked me to come talk here tonight, I was both really, really excited and also at a complete loss for words, which for those of you who know me or can guess something about me, this is not a very normal occurrence in my life. Now, I was excited because how awesome and how wonderful to be honored to give you this talk about amazing, exciting, fascinating women in history. But I was also at a total loss for words because A, how on earth was I supposed to talk about the history of bold women in 20 minutes? B, what women should I highlight? And C, where the hell do I start? So that's where I began. Um, and I just want to point out really quickly, giving credit where credit is due, where I did start. I started with two kids' books that are incredible. One is called Rad Women Worldwide, and the other one is called Rad American Women A to Z. So if you're interested, definitely check these out. These were a great inspiration for me. 
The other thing that I looked to was what was happening this year in 2017. I felt like January was just this incredible moment. All of a sudden, it felt like everything changed, especially with regard to women's rights and women's activism. So I started thinking a little bit about this year and what had changed and what had happened. Then I started reflecting about myself a little bit, and I was thinking, man, here I am. I'm a feminist. I'm a historian. I am a very notably bossy and vocal woman. And this is the first time in all my 38 years that I have ever gone to a protest march. How can that be? So I started thinking about what finally motivated me and what motivated millions of women around the world to gather together to make a sign, no matter how pathetic it may have been. Yeah, that's, that's glitter, glue, and marker right there, guys. <laughs> so what motivated millions of women around the world to rise up, to make a crummy sign, and to get out there and march and to have their voices heard? And I decided that this would be a really amazing way to talk to you guys about the history of bold women in just 20 minutes. So I thought, okay, why did millions of women around the world rise up? And I distilled it down into five basic points. And there are many more than this, I am certain, but these are five good jumping off points for us here tonight. So the first of these is women's health and reproductive rights. You guys saw from my pathetic sign that this is something that was near and dear to my own heart. The second thing is economic security that women have long been fighting for, and certainly this year has come up as something very important. Also, women marched for women to have political voices and political representation. Women marched in support of women's safety. And I think now more than ever, women came together in support of the civil rights movement and all that that entails. And of course, I would suggest to you guys that most people marched for a combination of these reasons or perhaps for all of these reasons. So we're gonna use these as our touchstones to talk about the history of bold women. How does that sound, everybody? Good. I was hoping you guys would say yes. All right. <laughs> so the first thing I wanna talk about then is women's rights in terms of reproductive rights and women's health. And I wanna do this by introducing you guys, for those who don't know, uh, about the history of Margaret Sanger and the history of Planned Parenthood. Now, I will say that Margaret Sanger is something of a controversial figure, and I think for good reason. She supported a contemporarily popular eugenics program that decided that using sterilization and birth control to keep unfit parents from procreating, uh, and she thought that that was something that was acceptable, and that's something that I don't think is acceptable, and I don't think any of us should. But I still think Margaret Sanger is a really good person to think about, especially because she helped start the birth control movement in the United States and helped found Planned Parenthood, ultimately. So a little bit history about Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger was a nurse in the 19-teens, and she started Planned Parenthood in 1916. Now this came about four years after the 1912 event that really changed Sanger's life. So in 1912, she was the nurse assisting a doctor who was helping a young woman named Sadie Sachs, who was 28 years old, mother of three, and who nearly died after a self-induced abortion. Margaret Sanger was sitting there alongside the doctor when Sadie Sachs asked the doctor, what can I do to prevent future pregnancies? The doctor's response to her, and you guys can read it up here as well, was, you want to have your cake and eat it too, do you? Well, it can't be done. Tell your husband to sleep on the roof. Well, that's good birth control. <laughs> but that really was the only option for women in the 19-teens, husbands sleeping on roofs. 
right? Because something called the Comstock Laws made it illegal for people to disseminate information about birth control and certainly to disseminate actual birth control or any advice on how to prevent pregnancies from happening. Now that response really motivated Margaret Sanger and she soon after began publishing pamphlets and a book in 1914 that talked to women about their bodies and offered them knowledge about both their bodies and reproductive rights. Now, Margaret Sanger feared what she called biological slavery. That is, that women were destined to become pregnant and destined to become mothers. And if they didn't know anything about their bodies, then this would never change for them. She wanted women to have knowledge about entering into sexual relations, whether in marriage or out of it. And she wanted them to think and know about their bodies within those relationships. Now, Margaret Sanger was doing something very illegal in 1914 and beyond, right? She was publishing information about birth control, a direct violation of the Comstock Law. She was arrested frequently, but she persisted. In 1916, she opened the nation's first birth control clinic in Brooklyn, New York. Within the first week and a half of being open, more than 400 women had gone to that clinic. Clearly, there was a need there. After a month, and after frequent raids by police officers, Sanger's clinic was shut down. Once again, she had violated the law. She gave an undercover policewoman information about birth control. At Margaret Sanger's trial, the judge, sitting from his bench, actually waved a cervical cap at her, waved a cervical cap at her, and said, no woman should have the right to copulate with a feeling of security that there will be no resulting conception. That's right, I had the same reaction you guys did. No woman should have the right to copulate without the feeling, with the security that there will be no resulting conception. In other words, women were simply meant to have babies and there was no other destiny allowed for them. Now this motivated Margaret Sanger even more, emboldened her even more. In 1921, she created the American Birth Control League, which by the 1940s had evolved into Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood was at the forefront and in standing in support of all mov movements towards developing birth control, including the development of the pill in the 1950s and 1960s. Planned Parenthood also brought challenges to the Supreme Court with regard to both married couples and later unmarried couples having the right to information about contraception. But keep in mind, this didn't happen until the 1960s and for unmarried people until the 1970s. The Comstock laws were powerful indeed, but it took Sanger and the efforts of Planned Parenthood to really challenge those laws and make real change. By the 1980s, Planned Parenthood had decided to make their efforts global, and they serve over four and a half million people worldwide annually, offering education and also many different reproductive rights and services. While Planned Parenthood fought to protect women and their reproductive rights, other women sought to protect women from a different type of slavery, what we might call economic slavery. And there were numerous women on the ground who sought to challenge those restrictions against women having control of their personal economies. And the woman I would like to highlight in this regard is a woman named Dolores Huerta. And before I talk about her though, I wanna talk a little bit about the history of Femcover laws in the United States. So Femcover laws are something some of you may be familiar with. You may have heard that term before. But it effectively means what it says. It means that women are covered. So the idea of Femcover is that when women got married, they would become one with their spouse. 
That is, they would subordinate their economic rights, their right to property, their right to make contracts, to their husband in exchange for protection, economic, social, political, and otherwise. And Femco Ver laws were the order of the day in the United States, at least, for much of American history. In fact, you can go back to the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. You can look at the American suffrage movement in the 19-teens and 20s. You can look at the feminist movement in the 1960s and 1970s. And in each of these instances, women were fighting to challenge those Femme Covert laws and to change the laws regarding women's political and economic rights. And Dolores, Dolores Huerta did this from the ground level up. So Dolores Huerta, sorry guys, I keep messing up her name, Dolores Huerta, was an elementary school teacher in the 1950s, and she taught in the Central Valley of California, which was a heavily agricultural area. Huerta saw bare feet and empty stomachs amongst all of her students, and she soon realized that she could actually make bigger changes for these students and for their parents if instead of teaching at elementary school, she became a community organizer. And that's exactly what Dolores Huerta began to do. So she left her job and she started fighting for better rights for farm workers in the Central Valley. She urged them to go to the polling places to have their voices heard. She urged local and state legislatures to make improvements to the nearby barrios. And she convinced a number of farm workers to unite together and fight for better wages and better working conditions. By 1962, she had taken all that she had learned. She came together with Cesar Chavez, another local organizer, and they created the now famous United Farm Workers Association. And with their work with the United Farm Workers Association, they made tremendous changes for farm workers in California and around the world, but mostly in California. Now, Dolores Huerta, some of the things that she was able to do are down here. The 1975 law that allowed California workers the right to organize and collectively bargain, and later in 1988, a California Farm Labor Act. Now, the way that Huerta was able to help get those things passed was by constant voice, by always being out there marching, speaking out, and with the No Grapes campaign, which led to that 1988 law, she encouraged farm workers to begin a boycott that soon went viral, if you will. So what the No Grapes campaign did was it encouraged Americans to stop buying California table grapes until the Table Grape Association made for uh, fair labor and fair pay for those grape pickers. 17 million Americans boycotted table grapes, and let me tell you, when that many people stop buying your product, you listen up. So she was able to use the economy, the economic boycott, the purse strings that women often held to make a difference. But what I really love about Dolores Huerta is that she also was a voice to women in her community. Dolores Huerta was vocal. She was bossy. People listened when she spoke. She spoke to men and women alike. She spoke to wives and mothers. She spoke to women and she spoke to humans. And with her fight, she was able to make tremendous changes for both men and women in terms of their economic security and economic stability. In her words, she said, quote, don't be a marshmallow. Walk the street with us into history. Get off the sidewalk. Stop being vegetables. Work for justice. Viva la boycott. Some good advice.
Now, whether she realized it or not, Huerta was not only encouraging women to fight for economic rights and economic security, but also for a political voice and political representation. And I'd like to highlight two quick stories for you guys uh, in that regard. The first comes from Argentina. Now, just for a quick brief history, from 1976 to 1983, Argentina was under a brutal military dictatorship. Under that dictatorship, anybody who spoke out in opposition to the Argentinian government was silenced, and they were silenced by being disappeared. They just fell off the face of the earth, seemingly. These critics included students, professors, artists, social workers, activists, and really anybody who spoke out in opposition to the government. Now imagine this then. You have this oppressive, brutal military regime. You have a culture that says that women should not talk, should not be heard publicly. And then all of a sudden in 1977, a year after these disappearances began, 14 mothers gathered together in a very public square, the Plaza de Mayo in Buenos Aires, Argentina with white kerchiefs on their head. And they began chanting, first softly, then loudly, we want our children, and we want to be told where they are. And every Thursday, these mothers met in the plaza, and every Thursday, more and more women came, and louder and louder was their chant, we want our children, and we want to be told where they are. Local and global attention was soon paid to the Madres, and people started to really think about what was happening in Argentina. Now, of course, the Argentinian government did not want this to happen. They attempted to silence the Madres. Three of the original Madres were themselves disappeared, never to be heard from again. But this didn't scare these women. This didn't stop them from growing in number every Thursday in the Plaza de Mayo. Instead, in the words of Maria del Rosario de Cerruti, one of the things that I simply will not do now is shut up. Good work. <clears throat> in 1983, the military regime was overthrown in Argentina, and many of those who had caused the disappearances were brought to justice. Now, the other example that I want to talk about with regard to political voice and representation is a bit more contemporary of an example. You guys actually saw this young woman's picture in the slideshow that started us off tonight. Uh, this is a young woman named Malala Yufshazai, who grew up in northwest Pakistan under Taliban rule. Now, Malala, despite the fact that she was just 11 when her life really began to change, made huge strides in giving women political voice and representation. So I'm sure many of you guys know about the Taliban. We hear, <clears throat> excuse me, hear about them frequently. Especially for women, it's a, an incredibly oppressive regime to live under, where women are offered no rights, no education, and no freedom. Despite all of this, Malala decided to speak out. At age 11, her diary was published anonymously on the BBC's website. And as I'm sure you guys can imagine, a firestorm was created as people looked at the conditions that Malala and young girls like her were living under and thought, we have to do something to change this. But like that regime in Argentina, the Taliban was having none of this. An outspoken woman criticizing their ways? No chance. They sent people out to kill Malala. They shot her in the head and left her for dead. But this scrappy, bold young woman survived and went on to write a bestseller. How's that? <laughs> yeah. 
her book, I Am Malala, as I said, went on to be a bestseller, and then she continued her activism. She continued to fight for women's rights and for the education of young girls in Pakistan and around the world, for girls under Taliban rule and girls everywhere. In 2014, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, and I love this. She actually took the prize money, which is about $500,000, and she put it towards opening a secondary school for girls in Pakistan. How incredible. <clears throat> Malala realized, in her words, when the world is silent, even one voice becomes powerful. And I think even more importantly, she went on to say, if one man can destroy everything, why can't one girl change it? Why not, indeed? <clears throat> now, under the Taliban and under other oppressive regimes, and even in the modernized, westernized world where it seems like women are free, women still run the risk and have always hanging over their heads the possibility of rape, domestic violence, and oppression. And so I want to talk for just a moment about women's safety and one woman who did much to challenge challenges to women's safety. That woman is named Agnes Perayo. Now, Agnes came of age in the 1960s and 1970s as part of the Maasai culture in Kenya. In the Maasai culture, female genital mutilation was not just a customary practice, but was considered by many to be a rite of passage into womanhood. At age 14, Agnes and her family began discussing her female circumcision, and she said, no, I don't want to do it. I'm scared. I don't want this. This is no good. I'm hearing stories about other women who aren't doing it. And her father actually supported her decision, but her mother and her aunties would hear nothing of it. They said, you cannot be a true woman unless you go through this process. And so at age 14, Pariah was operated on. But from that moment on, she was able to turn that tragedy into a really positive moment. She promised herself, quote, I was going to do everything I could to stop this ever happening to another girl. My daughters would not be cut, and the daughters of the Maasai would not be cut. She started traveling village to village, holding educational workshops and programs, talking to people in the Maasai culture about the horrendous effects, challenges, and problems that went along with female genital mutilation. And her actions led to some incredible change with regard to women's safety in Kenya. As she said, quote, when women stand up and defend themselves, it works. In 1975, 98% of Maasai women were mutilated just like I was. Today it is 27%. It wasn't handed down on high. It was fought for by me and my sisters. I believe that no woman should call herself free until all women are free. I am one part of a global struggle. I hope we can all rise together. Now the last group of women that I wanna talk about are part of the civil rights movement, a movement that has long historical roots. Now when I thought back to the Women's March in January, I thought about how civil rights played a part. And what I noticed while I was marching was that women banded together in support of the Black Lives Matter movement, in solidarity with Standing Rock, in alliance with the LGBTQI community, and in fellowship with immigrants and other marginalized people. 
And the nonviolence that was practiced that day in January, not just here in Seattle, not just here in the United States, but around the world, has incredibly deep roots. And so I want to spend just a minute talking about those roots. And I want to highlight three different women within that. So the first is a woman who was instrumental in the fight of African Americans for civil rights in the 1950s and 1960s. But she's not a, a name you may have heard of before. She's not a Rosa Parks or a Coretta Scott King or a Casey Hayden. This woman's name is Ella Baker. And I chose her story because I find her to be such a remarkable behind the scenes organizer. So Ella Baker was the granddaughter of a slave. And you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree often. The story was passed down in Ella's family about how her grandmother refused to marry the man that her master had picked out for her. Feisty, bold woman. And Ella took those lessons and she infused them into her own fight for the rights of African-Americans, workers, and women. Ella Baker served as the right-hand woman to Martin Luther King Jr. and to Rosa Parks, among others, and she was seminal in the creation of two of the most important civil rights organizations, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SCLC and SNCC, respectively. She went on as leader of those organizations and as a tremendous and vocal civil rights activist to begin voter registration drives, both in the North and the South for African Americans. She was one of the main organizers of the Freedom Summer in 1961, which sought to get voters in the Deep South registered to vote. She participated in sit-ins across the nation. She helped organize the Freedom Rights, the Freedom Rides, excuse me, which sought to desegregate transportation across the United States on buses, trains, and streetcars. And she said, I think poignantly and incredibly presciently, quote, until the killing of black men, black mother's sons, becomes as important to the rest of the country as the killing of a white mother's sons, we who believe in freedom cannot rest until this happens. The major job she realized was getting people to understand that they had something within their power that they could use. And it could only be used if they understood what was happening and how group action could counter violence. And the lesson she taught was tremendously influential in the growth of the civil rights movement after her time. Now, the second woman I want to highlight is a woman named Yuri Kochiyama, who was also an activist in the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1950s and 1960s. Now, Yuri Kochiyama was a young woman coming of age in 1941, a second-generation Japanese-American. But when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, like over 100,000 of her fellow Japanese-Americans, Yuri Kochiyama's entire family was told that they needed to leave their home, leave all of their possessions behind, and moved to an incarceration camp somewhere in the middle of the United States. Kochiyama's family was moved to Arkansas, where they lived for the duration of the war, knowing that they had nothing to go back to and suffering through squalid conditions and an almost total loss of culture. After she was released from the camp, she and her new husband moved to the New York City projects, where they raised their six children alongside Puerto Rican and black neighbors. And growing up in this community, 
raising her children in this community, Yuri realized that she had a lot in common with the African-American civil rights movement. She began visiting the scarred sites of racial violence in the Deep South. She began going to civil rights protests and sit-ins in New York City and beyond. And she also turned that struggle to try to benefit Japanese Americans in the United States. She began to pressure the federal government in the 1970s and early 1980s to both recognize the indignity of having incarcerated over 100,000 Japanese Americans and also to provide reparations for all that was lost, which was achieved with the 1988 Civil Liberties Act. And Yuri Kochiyama had some great advice for people coming up in the civil rights movement. She said, quote, transform yourself first because you are young and have dreams and want to do something meaningful, that in itself makes you our future and our hope. Keep expanding your horizon, decolonize your mind, and cross borders. Now the final woman that I want to talk about tonight is a woman named Kasha Jacqueline Nagabasera. Nagabasera was also known as Bombastic to her friends. I think that's the coolest bold woman nickname I can think of. So Nagabasera was a young woman growing up in Kampala, Uganda, and she's known as the founding mother of the LGBTI movement in Uganda. She grew up constantly discriminated against and bullied because of her sexual orientation, but she turned that experience into action. In college, she began speaking out for gay rights, and at age 23, she founded something called Freedom and Rome Uganda, or FARAG, one of the main and most instrumental gay rights organizations in Uganda. Now, she did this. I think it's hard for us in the United States to understand under what duress she did this. In the United States, we talk about gay rights a lot. They're well regarded in many circles. In Uganda, there was virtually no one in support of gay rights. In 2009, the Ugandan government made a law that made homosexuality in some cases punishable by death, but in all cases punishable. The media even went so far to support this government campaign in publishing photographs of people who were suspected of being gay, saying, hang them all. Kasha's uh, photograph was published among them. This did not stop her. This did not scare her. She joined a program called Reclaiming the Media that called on the government in Uganda and the uh, press in Uganda to do the right thing and to protect people's rights and privacy. She went on to hold the first gay pride parade in Uganda and open the first gay bar in Uganda. She also published an online LGBTI magazine that had more than two million downloads in one year. She was really getting people to think about gay rights in Uganda despite constant violent homophobic attacks against gay people there and around the world. And she used that message of nonviolence in her activities. She said, quote, I'm full of rage, but I won't get a gun and fight. I'll use my words to break down the system of oppression. So what are our takeaways here? We looked at a very brief history, a too brief history, of just a few women capturing lots of different themes that have become 
more important and more at the front of our minds here in 2017. Well, I'm going to use the words of these women themselves. For as Ella Baker said, quote, in order to see where we are going, we not only must remember where we have been, but we must understand where we have been. I love this. I'm a historian, so I'm a nerd when it comes to this stuff. So she's saying not only do we have to know the story, the dates, the names, but really we need to understand them. Why are they important? What can we use from these lessons to make different decisions? So let's hear what these women have to tell us. The first one I think is pretty easy. I'll use my words to break down the system of oppression. Also, don't be a marshmallow. One of the things I simply will not do now is shut up. If one man can destroy everything, why can't one girl change it? I hope we can all rise together. Group action can counter violence. And because you are young and have dreams and want to do something meaningful, that in itself makes you our future and our hope. In other words, get up, take action, speak loudly, speak powerfully, be bold, and be proud of that unique feminine boldness. Work together and be the future and the hope. And let me tell you, women, if you do these things, the world will hear our voice. So next we have an incredible panel. Uh, we're going to have a discussion about being bold and being bold historically and being bold in the future. So um, I would like to welcome to the stage uh, several of our panelists. Adrian Brown, the president and COO of Intellectual Ventures. Marty Hartman, Executive Director of Mary's Place. Karen Mathis, President and General Manager of KUOW. Yes. Kathy O'Driscoll, Chief Human Resources Officer of PATH. Rosa Peralta, Executive Director, Latino Center for Health. Wow, I'm suddenly much more nervous than I was a few minutes ago. Goodness, ladies. Okay. Uh, now, I'd like to welcome uh, someone who will be facilitating the conversation with a little help from me, but she'll actually handle the whole thing. She is a WSOS scholar. I think you'll be wildly impressed. In fact, I think this is the future of female. And, you know, think about yourself when you were 19-ish. Hello. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> and, and just think if this w was what your resume sounded like. I know it wasn't what mine sounded like. Uh, so I'm going to read this because they're so, it's so interesting and so incredibly impressive. Uh, Jor Jordana is currently a senior biology major at WSU. Her freshman year, Jordana received the Washington State Opportunity Scholarship, which not, which not only helped her afford tuition, but also allowed her the financial freedom to pursue research and other opportunities which would help shape and enrich her academic experience and support her professional goals. She is currently the research coordinator for the Exercise Physiology and Performance Laboratory and was previously a research assistant for the accuracy and reliability of physical activity monitors during pregnancy study. Okay? I mean, really, guys, like, impressive, right? Nothing? You got nothing? <laughs> 
She does research in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at WSU, examining how wearable technology can detect physical activity, behavioral changes. While she's found a passion with research, she also works as an undergraduate research peer mentor. And she serves as co-chair of Broadening Participation in Computing Club, founder and president of the Undergraduate Research Club at WSU, assistant supervisor for the WSU Testing Center. Oh my goodness. Her academic aspirations are to attend graduate school to earn a PhD in biomechanics. I don't think that will be a problem. Um, <laughs> then she hopes to become a research professor and research injury prevention using wearable technologies. Wow, welcome. Amazing. Hi, so before I get started, I just want to say how excited I am to be here today and what an honor it is to share the stage with so many incredibly accomplished women. These are the type of people that we need as role models and influences for our future generations. Personally, I'm a scientist, but I still like to get dressed up and wear pink heels. I think that these stereotypes surrounding science can sometimes be an issue when it comes to retaining and getting people interested in STEM from underrepresented groups. That's why it's so important to have positive role models and support systems of all kinds. I have two supportive parents and an older sister, Jessman, who is currently pursuing her PhD in computer science. I also have two amazing research mentors, Dr. Christopher Conley and Dr. Diane Cook. These are the people that have gotten me to where I am today. But there's one group who's getting me to where I'll be tomorrow, the Washington State Opportunity Scholarship. Spring. Oh. <laughs> Spring of my senior year, I stared at my acceptance letter to WSU. The harsh reality set in. There was no way that my family or I could afford for me to go to college. About a month later, though, I received an email saying that I was a recipient of the Washington State Opportunity Scholarship, and it was like I had just found the golden ticket. What's unique about this scholarship is that it isn't just for a year or two. It can actually support a student for up to five years and increases once they reach junior status. This allows students to not only go to college, but actually stay and earn their degrees. What's unique about this scholarship, though, is that it doesn't just give to their students financially. They truly care about each and every one of us. They've been one of the biggest support systems and families that I have had at WSU. I know you just heard a lot about who I am and what I did, but I'm just going to give you a little roundup and preview of that again. So I'm currently a senior in biology at WSU, and I've worked in the departments of computer science and exercise physiology. I've worked on projects that deal with rehabilitation patients and using Fitbits to track their physical activity. And I've also worked on projects validating the accuracy of physical activity monitors in pregnant women. I have had the support of the Opportunity Scholarship and their encouragement every step of the way. They've attended six of my research presentations and are constantly looking for new opportunities for me. Unfortunately, not everyone's this lucky. It is my hope that men and women can work together so that they can ensue that everyone not only has a say in the choices in their life, 
but the support to actually make those choices. Your resistance and your voice are showing that gender equality is, not, is a human issue, not just a woman issue. Millennials like myself are looking, watching, we're getting inspired, joining groups, and learning how to be activists. You are not advocating for just a few, but for all humans across all cultural, social, and economic spectrums. The work you are doing is owned by everyone who cares about human rights. You are the people who help young women be bold in the pursuit of their future. So thank you for that. This evening, we are honored to have a superb panel of highly successful women who are making a difference in the wide range of work that they do. They champion human rights and are representatives of NGOs, education, health, and media organizations in Seattle. I'm going to ask them to share their stories with us tonight and tell us how they take action and take a stand. So please help me in welcoming the panelists. So to start things off, Kathy, please introduce yourself and tell us the things that you do to make yourself be bold. Hello, everyone. Um, I do want to give a special shout out to the Why We girls who are here. Um, <laughs> Why We is a program for young women empowered that is about creating opportunities for the next generation of leaders who are going to make the future better for all of us. So I just wanted to say thank you to those girls for coming. Um, a little bit about me. Um, I am the head of human resources at PATH. I serve on our executive team. So what is PATH? PATH is a global NGO, one of the largest. Our focus is on innovation in the areas of, in, of um, health uh, equity. Our goal is health equity for all, but we focus on doing that through focusing on women and girls, and we do it through technology innovation in the arenas of vaccines, drugs, diagnostics, devices, and social service innovations. We operate in over 70 countries, and in many of those countries, which are largely located in Africa and Southeast Asia, International Women's Day is a holiday. <laughs> so, so when I was asked to serve on this panel, I had to say yes, because I've seen the momentum and the energy and the celebrations that happen in some of the countries where PATH operates, and I thought, we should have that here, especially now. So I'm just thrilled to be part of this. Um, I think you asked me a question, so maybe I'll move to the question. <laughs> I have some notes. <laughs> what are the things that you do to make yourself be bold? Thank you. I did just get off a plane from India yesterday. I'm a little jet lagged. Um, so I did make some notes. And uh, I'll, I'd say it starts with being clear about my values. Um, if you were to look at my LinkedIn page, you would see that I say, know what you stand for and stand for it. 
So the key for me has been to do that work within myself to understand what I do stand for, and I'm clear on that. I stand for love. That's who I am. That's my purpose in life. Um, so when I'm faced with a choice or an opportunity, I think about it from that context. Um, consequently, I think other people may see me as making bold choices that for me are really just natural choices. Um, and I'll give you three examples of that. Um, one was I had a 20-year career at Microsoft. It was a very comfortable place for me. Um, and then I joined PATH, a mission in health equity, something that aligns with my passion, uh, focus on women and girls, a huge change, uh, a move into a scientific arena that I knew nothing about, a risk. Um, but for me, it was about wanting to be part of that mission. Um, the second one was becoming the legal guardian for my stepchildren. And um, again, this was just a choice that was obvious to me from uh, my value of love. And the third uh, example I would give is leveraging my job. So I have the privilege of working in HR leadership. And my role is about focus, has the, gives me the opportunity to focus on many of the issues that are in the news all the time, like pay equity, um, like creating um, opportunities for developing all people, but especially women um, for leadership roles. And I take that very seriously and have been a champion and an advocate for women throughout my career in that way as part of my day job. So I'm lucky that I get to do that. Um, but what else helps me be bold? Uh, so there's the clarity of my mission. Um, there's also little things that I do. Um, strength training, yes, I lift weights. <laughs> and I think this is very important. I love that you're working in exercise science because I, it's so important for confidence and, and strength to, for me to do that, and um, whatever that fitness goal that anyone has, that, like that focus on our taking care of ourselves, strength helps us be strong in everything else we do and for our families. Um, and then the other thing I just wanted to mention is investing in relationships. Um, I made a commitment to a group of seven women 20 years ago. We meet monthly for dinner. We share our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly. We're there for each other. Uh, we support each other. We give each other feedback. Um, and we share joys and sorrows. And um, that has been a huge rock for me. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a circle like that, to go create one. Um, and now I'm in the process of expanding my circle and really seeking to deepen relationships with um, women who are outside of my circle. Um, I'm, I want to understand the experiences of my African-American friends and other women of color and, and what those experiences are. Um, what's that transgender challenge? Um, so being engaged with a variety of people, building relationships and listening to understand and learn is part of what I'm trying to be bolder about. Thank you very much. Now, Marty, please introduce yourself and tell us about when and where you're planning to be bold next 
and if there's a specific event or moment that your planning will take some courage. Alrighty. Um, my name's Marty Hartman. I'm the director of Mary's Place. I have an incredible uh, job. Thank you. Amazing job. Um, we are able to provide emergency shelter and resource centers for families and women experiencing homelessness. Um, I've been with the organization since it started in 1999, and as you know, there's been an incredible change and shift in the number of people that are, that are homeless. Um, I have always believed that this is solvable, it is doable, and that we can bring every woman and family inside, but it will be our community that will do this. Um, in, over the last year, we were blessed with some corporate support that believes like we do that no child should sleep outside in this community. And, yeah, amazing. So led by Starbucks, Amazon, Microsoft, and 47 other corporations, they jumped in and ran toward this crisis. They said that this is solvable. We believe, like you do, that no child should sleep outside. And together, we raised $4.5 million. Mm -hmm. Amazing. An incredible gift and a life-saving gift. So my question that you proposed to me was, what is my bold next move? And my bold next move now is to deliver on that promise that no child would sleep outside. So um, yeah, we're working on it. Um, so this year, we will double our capacity from 400 to 800 beds. We will take these vacant buildings that are slated for redevelopment uh, and move families in and call them home for now. But that will give these families that brief moment in time, that one season they need to move forward. They will be able to stay together. We won't split this family up. They will stay together. They will be warm. They will be safe. They will be alive. And we will help them find a forever home. But it will be our community that will continue to work on this together. They are courageous. It's all of you coming together to remind these families that they're good, that they're worthy, that they're lovable, and that they will have a home. Thank you for your incredible work. Karen. Please introduce yourself and tell us about a time that you wished you would have been bold and weren't. Thank you. I'm Karen Mathis. I'm president of Puget Sound Public Radio and general manager. <laughs> general manager of KUOW 94.9, and I want to see that same level of enthusiasm for the fundraiser tomorrow. <laughs> Um, KUOW uh, is 65 years old this year. Um, that's, uh, even by public radio standards, that's quite a milestone. Uh, we were formulated in 1952, and we currently are serving upwards of a million people monthly on air, online, and digitally delivered fact-based journalism and stories of the Puget Sound. <laughs> I've had, thank you, I've had a 49-year and counting uh, career in journalism. Uh, no, I didn't start when, when I was five. I started when I was 13, 
got my first story uh, published in the, the local daily paper in southern Indiana when I was 13 in junior high school. But I've had a career in, in uh, that long a career in print, uh, radio and TV, commercial and non-commercial. And I guess what drives me is that I do believe, and I am unapologetic about being evangelical about this, I do believe that freedom of information and fact-based journalism is a cornerstone of democracy. And I, <laughs> and I honestly do believe in Thomas Jefferson's words that a well-informed population is necessary to, for them to be trusted with their own governance. And so that's an important factor. Um, I guess I cringe at the lack of boldness early in my career and my tenure as a manager when those accusations of being shrill uh, were ringing inside your head. I think you all know what I'm talking about and, and worrying about, oh, am I coming off as a shrill uh, woman or, or too um, demanding or whatever caused me to self-edit my, my speech, my presentation, my demeanor, probably more than I should have. I remember very early in my tenure as a GM, I had uh, fought my way into uh, the owner. It was a university owner in Michigan, and I fought my way into an architect's meeting at the university because they, I got wind of the fact that they were planning new space for the radio station without consulting us at all about what kind of space that we needed. And so I fought my way into that meeting and I remember having the chief architect of the university, to mind you, there's a U-shaped table and all the white male architects are on one side and there's the little chocolate girl on the other side of the table and the chief architect turned to his, his uh, crew and said, see, I told you she was going to be a problem. And so, um, <laughs> and yet she persisted. <laughs> but I think you have to uh, remember, and this is at, uh, sadly, at any stage of your career, but particularly for women in the early stages of their career, when you'll feel outnumbered, outgunned, um, or you don't even have access to that kind of shadow layer of management that you, you're never quite able to get access to, and yet you know they're impacting your, your uh, work life and your goals. There's uh, this uh, shadow layer that often is pulling a lot of the strings that you just can't get to, and that can be terribly intimidating. You can feel shut down and, and really unsure of how to proceed. Do I try to continue to be a uh, fairly demure team player? Do I raise my voice and pound the table as some of my male colleagues do? How do I polish my powers of persuasion against players who don't view my presence there as equal or even valid? So I think, um, the, what I learned is I'm old enough now that I don't care about being shrill. That's one thing. And I think just learning to parse those various skills, pull those skill sets out of the bag at the appropriate moments, um, that was a huge uh, turning point for me as a leader. And I guess the, the last thought I'd like to leave you with for this portion, have you seen that television commercial for an antiperspirant? 
and the two women are in the elevator, and one woman has her hands in the air, and she's breathing hard, and she's getting her game face on, and the other woman is in her ear. Yes, those numbers are right. Yes, you studied the prospectus. Yes, you know what you're doing. You're killing it. You're killing it. Get out there. And I think that, that we have to be not only mentors, but cheerleaders, because the negative voices sometimes in our own head that society places there, and definitely the negative uh, feedback that we often get from uh, our surroundings. When we have a chance to you know, be that cheerleader on that person's shoulder and say, get it, girl, we should do that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen. Now, Adrian, will you please introduce yourself and explain to us how you are using your influence to advance women? I just want to drop the mic. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Adrienne Brown, and um, I'm the President and Chief Operating Officer at Intellectual Ventures, a company that dreams big and loves the power of invention. Before I came here seven years ago to take on that job, which was a bold change from my 30 years in corporate America. You see, I started my career at Corning Incorporated as a shift supervisor in a manufacturing plant. And I wore cute shoes back then, too. <laughs> I went into that field because I had a curiosity about leadership and seeing people lead and what organizations that felt good and felt a part of something delivered extraordinary results. And I wanted to know can a leader really make a difference? So I went into this environment not knowing what I wanted to be when I grew up to see if leadership really mattered. And I can tell you that after 20 years at Corning from that shift supervisor's role to becoming the vice president and general manager of the environmental products division that in fact leadership truly matters. But I was really comfortable at Corning. Actually, I felt too comfortable. And so when the opportunity knocked to put myself back in a place of true challenge, I joined Honeywell. And it was interesting because the reputation under Larry Bossy was, you're up or out. So I said, I'm going to go for it. I want to see if I can be a big fish in a big pond. So I take on a turnaround division at Honeywell. And in 20 months, we really turned it out. I won't tell that story today, but it took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, really um, a commitment to changing an organization. And it is uh, clearly a testament for me that when people care and understand what's at risk, they will rise up. And one thing that happened during that time for me was a woman said to me, a woman that I uh, was a mentee of, 
She said, you know, I see how hard you're working, but I want you to understand one thing. If you do not take care of yourself, you cannot help your family, you cannot help your employees, you cannot help your company, you can't help anybody. So all of this pushing you're doing, taking red-eye flights, trying to make every meeting, being this thing to everyone, you better figure out how to expect that same amount that you expect of yourself of other people. But take care of yourself. And she said, also, you must find quality sleep. And I thought, that was, I really appreciate that now. So, so I went on to uh, do, do wonderful things. I ran a $6 billion global automotive business with Honeywell. Um, it was amazing. My $3 billion project was the turbocharger. And people said, you run the turbo business? I'm like, yeah, I do, of course. Let me turbocharge this thing up. It's all possible. But I, I, I joined uh, Intellectual Ventures because it was time again for me to do something out of my natural path to be bold. And so I took that time to come here. And so when you ask what has my, how do I use my influence, it's first, by living my own authenticity. If I believe I have to be healthy, then this morning at 6.15, I too was lifting weights. <laughs> it's important. Um, and the other thing is to accept what was said earlier about we were here because we were role models. Well, I don't think any of us asked to be a role model. But it is something that once you're that, you better, you better own a girl because people are watching. We have a narrow band of behavior. People expect certain things. And how they see us behave influences others. The other thing that I try to do to influence um, the progress of women in society is to remember that I am where I am because somebody mentored me. I am where I am because somebody cared about me. So I mentor and I care. I give because I was given. And to whom much is given, much is expected. So I just try to live my life in a way that makes me happy. Um, I also know that it can't just be about work and family. Those are wonderful things. But what else fulfills your life? And if you're happy in your life, you will be happy in your job. You'll be happy in the contributions that you make. So in addition to my day job, I am involved in two corporate boards. Why? Because I still like the corporate stuff, though I work in a private company. So that's important to me. The other thing that I do is I am a part of several non-for-profits. One is called Jobs for America's Graduates. This organization, over its 35-year history, has graduated over one million students who were most likely to drop out of high school. Wow. When, I, when, I, when I hear the stories of young people who face terrible odds, like not having a place to sleep, or having parents who suffer from mental illness or a, a, abuse or addiction, 
and these young people have no place to go. Well, this pro program provides kids with the support that they need, someone who cares about them and expects things of them and allows them to grow and nurture. And the other place that I spend my time in this region is in the Pacific Science Center. This organization is a gem in our community. And when I see young people go through that facility and see the joy and the appreciation that they have for science and how important that is for the world, for progress in the world, it's a great way to ensure that our region and all the people that we bring through the Science Center actually have that curiosity, that desire to experiment and to learn. Thank you very much. And we have one last introduction to go, so our last one is Rosa. Please introduce yourself and tell us what the biggest healthcare challenges are in Washington State for women and families of color. Uh, thank you. You know, I, I feel a little awkward. I have to follow all these wonderful stories, and now I get to be the Debbie Downer, you know, <laughs> talking about healthcare. And it's like, I, I need to drop the mic after your presentation as well. And, um, You know, just a full disclosure, we got in true feminist form, we got the questions before we got up here to the stage. <laughs> so we were following suit with, uh, you know, Hillary and uh, uh, Maria Brasso there. Um, my name's Rosa uh, Peralta Landin, and I'm the executive director for the Latino Center for Health. Uh, the Latino Center for Health is an organization that we're newish, not too new, but two years old around there. And it was started by two founders and it was in order to promote the health of Latinos in uh, Washington state and in the Western region. Um, Latinos, in, to answer your question, is the reason I said that I, you know, now I get to be Debbie Downer is because we're talking about health and health equity and health access. And in Washington State, uh, with the Affordable Care Act, and I'm proud to call it Obamacare, because it was uh, <laughs> President Obama that passed it. Um, women and people of color, you know, gained access to health care at much greater numbers than in a lot of other states. We were able to cut the number of uninsured by half. And, you know, it, it's in danger currently with the, the new administration, as you guys have all heard of, I'm sure everybody's waking up. We're only into day 46 of this administration. Who here is tired already? Yeah. Right? Um, so, uh, it's going to change significantly for sure. And, you know, gaining health access is not necessarily the answer to addressing a lot of the health issues of women and uh, people of color in Washington state. Because uh, when you gain access, what do you gain access to? So the question is, you're gaining, if you gain access to quality care, then you're much better off. But quality care and gain, having access to health care is not necessarily the answer to a lot of the problems of, that women and people of color in this state face. Is if what you need in order to lead a quality and healthy lifestyle is health equity. And health equity you cannot get in a doctor's office. And how do you get health equity, right? 
It's, there's the, the social determinants of health that actually drive your access to health equity. If you have a higher um, pay, you have better access to quality care. People that make more money have lower rates of obesity. People that make more money have um, you know, fewer deaths and complications to diabetes or cancer, breast cancer, for example. Um, and in order to get a higher rate of pay, you have to have better education. Um, I'm sure that you all have heard that women across the United States make 80 cents to the dollar uh, to men's pay. So that means that you don't have access to the higher health and higher equity and so on and so forth. Um, Bernie Sanders has been tweeting about it for a number of months about you know, the Equal Pay Act and so has Elizabeth Warren and a bunch of us in here have been talking about equal pay for equal work. But the problem with a lot of the, this, this uh, conversations that we have about the 80 cents is that if, if you don't see yourself in the data, then you're not a part of the conversation. Black women in Washington alone make 62 cents to the dollar. That's not a conversation we're having. Latinas make 48 cents to the dollar. How many of you guys are surprised? <clears throat> so when we're talking about health access and health equity, we need to actually talk about what the reality out is, is out there. Is not, we're not all in equal footing, in equal standing. Um, we have different access and different equity. So the changes in the, in the Affordable Care Act that are going to take place across the country are gonna have a dramatic impact, but a disproportionate impact on communities of color in Washington State and across the country. So, That's what I said, he's like, now I get to be Debbie Downer <laughs> to talk about this access. So what we're trying to do, what the Latino Center of, of Health is trying to do is kind of change the rhetoric. And, it's, and we've been trying to engage more communities of color. Who are, are do we have people, women of color? Shout out to the women of color and the Latinas out there. Because all, we all raised our hand and say that it's day 46 and we're all exhausted in this administration. Well, this is the way that people in communities of color have felt every single day, every single year, every single month. It's exhausting. So, you know, it's not that we're angry, we're just tired. <laughs> we are, it's, it's, it's tiring. And so, I mean, now we can actually move on and work together because you guys are feeling our pain somewhat. Thank you. Oh my goodness, I mean, introducing all of these amazing women, it's incredible. And the next one is fantastic. And I have to read her bio, I'm sorry, but it's just so amazing. I don't want to miss anything. Um, it's my sincere pleasure to introduce our next guest.
Her name is Martha Adams. She's an award-winning storyteller who produced the film at the center of the Girl Rising campaign. For those of you who have seen it, you know how awesome this is. Forbes magazine named Girl Rising Movement the number one most dynamic social <clears throat> initiative of 2012. Newsweek Daily Beast named her one of 125 women of impact. And today, acting as Girl Rising's chief creative officer, she produces stories to fuel girls' empowerment advocacy around the world. Most recently, she traveled with Girl Rising ambassador Meryl Streep. But she's not that, she's not that talented, is she? <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> to Africa. You guys didn't get that? Come on. Uh, <clears throat> to produce the CNN films, uh, TV special, We Will Rise, Michelle Obama's mission to educate girls around the world, now the highest rated CNN film of all time. Wow. Martha is also a senior fellow at the University of Southern California's My Marshall Brittingham Social Enterprise Lab, which recognizes leadership at the intersection of business and social impact. She serves as a film expert for the U.S. Department of State Diplomacy Program, American Film Showcase. And in 2015, Novus awarded her the Humanitarian of the Year Award. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Martha Adams. Tonight. One of the bravest girls in the world. Malala Yousafzai became renowned for demanding girls be given the right to education. Shot in the head on her school bus. She was a student who wanted to learn, but now she's fighting to live. Come on, skinny love, just last the I was 11 years old when my father arranged for me to be married. I had heard about the thousands of girls sold to men in those places. I can't really talk about everything that happened to me here, but I will never forget. We have come to this house, the house of her master, to say, you must set her free. Regrets collect like old friends, here to relive your darkest moments. I can see no one, I can see no one. And all of the goons come out to There is no miracle here, just a girl with dreams. I will read, I will study, I will learn. If you try to stop me, I will just try harder. If you stop me, there will be other girls who rise up and take my place. I am change. I am my own master now. feel as though I have power. Now there's nothing to stop me. I feel I can do anything. Thank you so much. Good evening. 
So for Girl Rising, um, I don't, some of you have seen the film. We were asked to um, make a film about this powerful truth that when you educate girls, entire communities benefit. It seems obvious, right? But it wasn't at the time. That when you educate girls, crop yields go up. Infant mortality goes down. Literacy goes up. National security improves. Everyone benefits when you educate girls. And yet, there's 130 million girls missing from classrooms today. The good news is we have a solution. We, it's about education. So I went around the world and interviewed lots and lots of girls. And I'm going to play just one chapter from the film. Um, you're going to hear Suma's story, and then afterwards I'll come up on stage and share what's happened since the film came out. I write songs to remind myself that my memories are real. And often, because there's so much sadness behind me, what comes out is sad. Both of my parents were bonded as Kamlar and Kamlari in their childhood. That's the way things have been around here. That's the way they have been for the poor. You have to bond yourself to a master, otherwise, how will you live? This was the house of my first master. My mother and father bonded me just so that I would have somewhere to live and enough food to eat. I was six years old. Fagutharu was a landlord and a miller. He made me work from four in the morning to late at night. I had to clean the house and wash the dishes and go to the forest to fetch firewood. When I wasn't minding the goats, I had to mind the children. The goats were nicer. The daughters made fun of me because my clothes were torn. They teased me. They beat me. I wanted my mother and father to take me back. 
I wanted them to let me stay at home and go to school like my brother. But when I thought about how poor they were and how much they too had suffered, it made me feel weak. I couldn't ask. This was the house of my second master. Janak Mala wore a uniform to work. He and the mistress of the house were very hard-hearted. Unlucky girl, they used to call me. Hey, unlucky girl, do this, they'd shout. They made me sleep in the goat shed and wear rags and eat scraps from their dirty plates. I can't really talk about everything that happened to me here, but I will never forget. This is where I began to write songs. Only the songs got me through. This was the house of my third master. I was 11 years old when I arrived at Chitai Tharu's house. I had been a Kamlari for five years. It wasn't as bad here. I mean, it was bad because there was a lot of work. But there was a lodger in that house, a school teacher called Bimusur. He changed my life. Bimal sir convinced my master and mistress to enroll me in a night class. All of us would gather after finishing our day's work and we would learn to read and write. I loved that night class so much. It was run by social workers for girls just like me, Kamlaris. We would also talk to the teachers about what it was like to be a Kamlari. And as we talked, we began to realize that bonded labor was, and isn't it, slavery. Namaste. Namaste. 
The teachers who ran the night class began to go from house to house. They wanted to liberate us. One teacher, Sita Didi, told my master that he was breaking the law by keeping me as a kamlari. She talked about the law against bonded labor, and the law about children's rights, and the law on labor rights, and the law against domestic violence and trafficking. She talked to him about justice and injustice, and she demanded that he set me free. My master said no. Once made, a bond couldn't be broken. Sita Didi didn't give up. She kept arguing. She came back day after day. And in the end, she led me home to my mother and father. I am my own master now. I have no mistress. I was the last bonded worker in my family. After me, everyone will be free. I feel as though I have power. I feel like I can do anything. And I have important things to do. Inside this house, is a girl like I was. Away from her parents, working morning to night, wanting so badly to be free. We have come to this house, the house of her master, to say, we know you have a Kamlari working for you. You must set her free. I've seen where change comes from. When it comes, it's like a song you can't hold back. Suddenly, there's a breath moving through you and you're singing. And others pick up the tune and start singing, too. And a sweet melody goes out into the world and touches the heart of one person. Then another. And another. I just want to pop, take a moment and have us wrap our head around her life story for a moment. So she was six when she was sold. And then she was reunited with her family at the age of 12. 
So that's kindergarten through sixth grade. When she was reunited with her mother and her father, she could no longer speak her native language. She could no longer make eye contact. She was a broken individual. But as you saw in the, in the film, she was paired with Room to, an organization called Room to Read. Yes, an awesome organization. And they have a social mobilizer program, and that's the woman that you saw in the film. Today, Suma is leading the charge to end indentured servitude. You will frequently see her on the front pages of the newspaper. And not that long ago, uh, she was invited to perform that song at Lincoln Center to a packed audience. I'm about to show you. Let's see. Here she is backstage at Lincoln Center. She's in excellent company, excellent company. So um, I said to her um, in New York, I said, Suma, isn't this amazing? Can you believe this? Can you believe this has happened? And she didn't, she didn't quite catch what I meant. So I said, Suma, how old was your mother when she married? She said, 14. How old do you want to be when you get married? She said, I don't know. 27, 29, I don't know. How many kids did your mother have? 12. How many kids do you want to have? Two would be nice. Does your mom read? Does she write? No. Can you read? Can you write? Of course I can. What, was, what did your mom dream of? And she paused and she said, nothing. I said, well, what do you dream of? And she says, I want to become a pharmacist. I want to open the first pharmacy in my region of Nepal. That's a nod to public health. And I said, well, isn't this incredible? So how do you explain this change in such a short period of time? And she paused, and she looked up, and she said, the change is me. I am the change. So I thought that was absolutely extraordinary, except that it wasn't. Because in making Girl Rising and now doing the work that I'm doing with countless other people, we now know that there are hundreds, thousands of girls across the developing world right now taking courageous steps to carve a new path for their community. I mean, this is, you want to talk about bold? This is, this is bold. So we thought after the film came out that our work was done. Educate girls, change the world, right? But we made a second discovery. 
What we realized, and you're going to think it's obvious, but at the time, you know, when you're in the thick of it, it's just not, that a girl can want to go to school all she wants, but unless the people in her community, unless her mother, her father, the teacher, the principal, the religious leader, unless they say she can go, she's not going to go. So, at Girl Rising, we said, well, we know that there are countless nonprofits around the world who are doing the physical work of getting girls into school. They're giving bikes and scholarships, and they're building separate bathrooms at the school. This is all necessary work. But we decided that at Girl Rising, we would focus on changing the way people think about girls that we would try to change mindsets and actually raise the value of a girl. Our hope is basically to ask the world to dream as big for your daughters as you do for your sons. So the original film, we received funding and we started adapting the film and launching campaigns around the world. So we launched Two weeks ago, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, That's, this photo is from that, we launched in northern Nigeria. You know something about that part of the world. And we also launched in India. And we, we are in movie theaters now, and on, we've blanketed the media um, distribution um, pipeline, but we also have grassroots programs. And so now I would like to share with you three examples that I've witnessed or that have had a profound impact on me where I've witnessed someone being bold for change. This is in Rajasthan, India. In 2000, and as recent as 2002, what percentage of girls graduated from secondary school? Just take a guess. 2002, Rajasthan, India. That's not that long ago. The answer is zero. Zero. I kept saying, Are you, this can't be right, this can't be right. That's just not that long ago. Zero. Through a, a program with World Vision and Ibtada, they brought Girl Rising to Rajasthan, and we started to dig in and do work, community engagement work. And I took this photo. We were meeting with the religious leaders in this village, and they were explaining to me that after the program, they were open to the change. They wanted to know how their daughters were safely going to get to school. They wanted to make sure that there were going to be female teachers because they weren't comfortable with their daughters being taught by men. Really good questions and really important concerns. And at the end of, at the end of this program, they agreed to let girls go to school. In Rajasthan, in the same community, they started a Girl Rising Brother-Sister program. The, this young boy is wearing a, a pin, the green ribbon, and he took an oath. And to be in this club, 
he has to do a few things. He has to make sure that his sister gets safely to school. He has to teach her how to ride a bike. Because in Rajasthan, traditionally, girls have never been allowed to ride a bike, play outside, or swing on a swing. He also has to do chores with her at the end of the school day so she has time to do her homework. More and more, we're finding that parents, if you say, will you send your daughter to school? They'll say, yeah, okay, okay, let's do this. And then you say, well, just a couple other questions. Um, who has to do all the chores? Well, my daughter. Who gets the protein? Who, how are the, how's the food divvied up? And this is what gender, this is what, when you peel back the layers of gender discrimination, these are the kinds of things you have to take a close look at. This is in Rajasthan. This is the very first co-ed cricket match. It's actually the first te uh, sports team for girls. This principal, he said, you know, for years after lunch, the girls have always had to do the dishes. And now I'm going to ask the boys to do the dishes. This is the last picture from the Rajasthan community, and this is um, two best friends. The girl on the right, her mother, um, her, her father passed away, and she just could not allow her daughter to go to school because there was too much work at home. So the community partnered her with this other girl who said that she would go home after school and do share the work in the fields so that they would both have time so that the other girl would have time to do her homework. So this is what community-led change looks like. And this is um, change that's happening right now. I mean, this is radical, transformational change. And I just wonder, you know, a lot of times we don't hear about this. The next example um, is a really tough one. Um, I've never actually publicly, um, oh, it's so tough that it's like I'm not going to go up there. Well, I will just start talking about it. So, um, in 2016, um, a girl named Sumera was in Pakistan, and her brother um, suspected that she was using her cell phone to talk to a boy. So he thought he did the right thing. He grabbed uh, a kitchen knife, and he stabbed her over and over. And then he dragged her body out the door and dumped it on the front stoop. And then he sat next to her, and looking at her cell phone, going through her call log. Neighbors gathered around as she bled to death, and the police arrived. I know you've all heard about honor killings, but something incredible happened in that moment that the, when the police arrived. They did something that nobody in that region in, that knows police work did. 
Instead of writing down the names of the family members who witnessed the crime, they wrote down individuals in the street. Now, why did they do that? Because family members traditionally could forgive for a crime like that. So the court, the case would never make it to court. Those police officers, in asking people who were not related to that girl to record that name, allowed that case to go forward. Now, how did that happen when we're talking about somebody like, we're, we're, we, we wrote on those white cards, right? We wrote what we're going to do that's bold. But why did those policemen do that? Because, now I don't know, I didn't go there. I didn't witness this, thank God. But a woman named Charmaine, maybe you saw her documentary, she made A Girl in the River. It won the Oscar last year. Prime Minister Sharif uh, saw the film and decided to screen it for uh, the Congress of Pakistan. And then he vowed to change the laws. And those police took a nod from their prime minister and decided to open it up. And that's how they did it differently. In October of last year, Pakistan passed a law forbidding honor killings. This is her brother. Let's see. Oh, my clicker's not working. Okay, this is the filmmaker, and this is Prime Minister Sharif. My third example. This one's a little bit easier to, to take. You might recognize the Meryl in, in, the, in the middle. I had the opportunity, um, I met with the First Lady uh, a, a year or so ago, and we've been handling her 62 million campaign and doing some of the marketing for Let Girls Learn, and we talked about going on a trip together to really meet revolutionary girls, to hear in their own words, what's it like out there? What's it like carving this new path? What is it required? And so we, went, we headed off to Africa, and Meryl said she wanted to come. And so in this situation, we were interviewing the girl in the purple. That's Hanan. Now, Hanan lives in a very small all-Muslim village on the outskirts of Marrakesh. This is a traditionally a place where girls have not gone to school. But Hanan is in this program. It's called Project SOAR, and it's uh, funded in part by the Peace Corps. And at this small after-school program, girls go and they learn about empowerment and destiny and what to do when you get your period and just everything that nobody has ever bothered to talk to them about. So... Meryl and I were wondering, now, Hanan, why in this place where girls traditionally have never been allowed to go to a place like this, how did Hanan get allowed to go? So we went, we went home, 
with her. Let's see if I can get this. There, I hope you can see. That is Hanan with her mother and her father. Before we could talk to the mother and father, the imams from the mosque came. Meryl was rather nervous in that part of the, the day. We sat down and we had this amazing conversation with the religious leaders, and they welcomed us. Then we sat down with her father, and we said, we know you have lots of other children, and Hanan is your youngest. We know that the others are not educated. Why are you deciding to educate Hanan? And he said, because I've heard about the power of education. We are stuck in a cycle of poverty. This was his exact words. And I want to try something different. I want Hanan to become educated. So we spent the whole evening, it was Ramadan, and we made this feast, and we all sat down together. And over the course of the evening, we really had a chance to talk to the father about his life and the grandmother and the mom. And we realized that this, again, was radical change all coming down on Hanan. It was a very beautiful night, and this is, this is me with Hanan's grandmother, and we were standing here, and we were wrapping up the evening, and I noticed behind me was a doorway, and there was fabric as a door, as a door, making so you couldn't go in and out. And I said, oh, Hanan, you didn't show me this room. Can, what's in there? She said, oh, that's, 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 my, that's where I sleep. I said, oh, can I see? Can you show me your books? Can I, can I see where you keep your things? And she said, no. I said, oh, Hanan, please, please. I, I, I'm a photographer, so I always, I love photographing desks and personal things. And she went to her dad, and she whispered in her dad's ear, and he said through a translator, he's like, I'm sorry, but my 16-year-old daughter is in that room, and she is forbidden to come out. She is forbidden. She may not be seen by a Westerner. The entire time that we were in this house, paying tribute to this father, there was... Hanan's older sister hearing this entire conversation. And the reason why she couldn't come out is because she had already been arranged into marriage and she married a very conservative man who said that she may not be seen. And that was, you know, that was a tough day because on one hand, we were celebrating Hanan's life and the fact that she gets to now pursue her dreams, and yet in the wake of that, there are still, there's so much suffering. So in the end, I think um, when we're reflecting back on, on what it means um, to be bold, I think it really comes, for me at least, it's, I think that one, we have to have our eyes wide open we have to be really present so that when we see somebody do something 
extraordinary, it might be really small, but we let them know. So after tonight, I need to call Claire and tell her about the dumpster story and how amazing she was. And I'll email Hanan's dad, and I'll, I'll email Suma, and I'll say, hey, I was in Seattle, you have to know this. The second thing is about being bold is recognizing community and community-led change, that our actions are the sum, we're the total the sum of many, many, many events and people and role models that help support us along the way. And then the third thing I think is that, and I'm not entirely sure how to put this into words, but that we have to realize that sometimes somebody does something bold and beautiful in the midst of tragedy. And sometimes in that moment when, that, when Sumera was killed by her brother and we're reading about honor killings in the paper and we feel dismay and we just can't imagine how we're going to sort out the problems of this world, that we have to focus and find the good news because I'm telling you, it, it's, it's there. So, if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presence. And to live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is in itself a marvelous victory. So that is my answer when Kate Eisler called me and said, can you talk about being bold? I, um, I know that you wanted me to answer the own question about being bold, but I really wanted to share these stories with you. But I, I will say that um, the, <laughs> this is going to be a little tough, um, the person in, in my life who, um, who um, supported me along the way and was my gatekeeper um, is this man. He's my dad. And he is a self-described radical. He's an Episcopal priest. He is um, one of the first Episcopal priests to bless gay marriage in the United States. He was uh, one of the first to rally to support AIDS victims in Colorado. The Sioux Indians named him an India a chief. He's the third white man in the history of the United States to be an Indian chief. And of all my time at Girl Rising, he's never been able to come to hear me speak, and he's here tonight. <laughs> Wow, no running mascara or anything. I was, have you guys ever tried to watch a show through that little peephole in the door in the back of the stage? But boy, I saw the good stuff. That was awesome, Martha. Um, okay, you guys, uh, next we've got uh, two people that are actually part of our team putting this day together. Uh, Nikki Smith and Kate Eisler, please head on up to the stage, you guys.
Nikki is the uh, Global Marketing Director at Microsoft and a longtime advocate and champion of women's rights. Kate is a 20-year international executive, currently the CEO of Daysaver. And I, you know, I could read their bios, but I'll just tell you guys, they're amazing women. They are absolutely the reason why this happened uh, this year. I know they had an event last year. They called some of us in to help us help them take it to the next level this year. We were so excited to work with them. They're amazing, quality, uh, just incredible women that you should definitely get to know if you don't already. And I'm going to let them take the stage. This is an amazing view from right here, I have to tell you. You know, this is something that I don't think that either one of us would have dreamed about. We have been talking about International, International Women's Day for years. You know, the, the day has been celebrated for over 100 years. And so this is not new. It's got some momentum for sure, but this is not new. You know, I learned about this living overseas and, and celebrating a holiday where it really was a holiday. You know, women gave each other flowers and gifts, and it was a great day. So, you know, Nikki came to the U.S. and said, you know, there's no International Women's Day celebrations in Seattle. What are we going to do? We, of course, were having a little bit of wine, thinking what, you know, <laughs> obviously we could fix that. I know. <laughs> and so we thought, you know, what are we going to do? So we sat down and said, well, you know, we can put something together. And this is like January of 2016. So, you know, there wasn't much time to go. And so we said, okay, you know, let's get this together. So we found a friend um, that, had, that worked at a winery. So Erica got us some wine cheap. And we got Francis to do a little social media. We got WeWork to give us a room. We talked our husbands into bartending and, you know, everything. <laughs> cleaning up the place, setting up the tables. It was great. And we thought, you know, here, we've done it. We had 86 people. I will say that um, right now as I look around, there's clearly, this is the biggest crowd ever that has ever been at an International Women's Day celebration, period. thrilled to have you. And, you know, one of the things we want to talk about is a little bit more than the celebration, because there is really a purpose behind this. And we've talked about it. Devin's talked about it. We've all referred to you know, sort of the history of women and the struggles that we've made. And so we wanted to really talk a little bit tonight about what action we can take from this celebration and where we go from here. And so we wanted to really kind of give you some thoughts about that. So, um, I think we're here uh, because we care about the gender gap and the disparities that there are between men and women. And if you haven't read the World Economic uh, Forum report on the gender gap, I urge you to do so. So, the average, they predict that it will take, on average, 170 years for the world to reach gender parity. Um, I hate to tell you guys, but none of us are going to be here in 170 <laughs> years. They've got a cute calculator on the site. I'm going to be 222. 
uh, debt. So, uh, no. so um, it will take longer, of course, in countries and regions like the Middle East, and it will come sooner in progressive uh, regions like Western Europe. But the US, out of 144 countries, is ranked 45th. And you know what? We're going backwards. The UK is not much better, it's 20th, and Iceland is first, if you wanted to know. So, so the UN does give us some advice on some things that we can do, five things. And I, know, I don't know if you feel like me, but sometimes I feel overwhelmed. There's so much we could go and do out there. And so these five things, any one of us can do here. So firstly, champion women's education. Jordana is a perfect example. So help raise funds, build a fund like WSOS and what Nara's doing there. Fantastic work with her and her team. Encourage young women to pursue STEM careers and education. Make them aware of female inventors, female engineers, female researchers, because many of their stories go untold. And why not take a lesson yourself in learning how to code? So Kate, thanks. The next thing, they, the category in which they gave us some action items here, was really to support women in business, to forge opportunities. And if you look tonight, you know, we've talked about a lot of that. You saw Tomboy X out there tonight. You saw female, the Female Farm Project. And you see Ginny, the tear. And so, you know, we really believe in helping women entrepreneurs, helping women's business. Work for a company that's women-friendly. Patronize women-owned businesses. These are all things that are easy in your community. I know you know women doing business. Talk to your bosses about how, who their suppliers are. Are they looking at women suppliers? Are they giving them an even shake? And really start to look at how you support people in the business world. And take, you know, if you think about mentors, we've talked a lot about mentors. You heard our panel talk about them. Take young women with you to meetings or to appointments that they never would get to, just to give them a feel for that, to help them progress in business. And then with women, side to side. You know, everybody, look side to side and look at where you can bring women in business together in. Yep. Thirdly, challenge bias and inequality. When you see a panel that's all male, or an agenda for a meeting and every speaker is male, challenge the people who are organizing it. In fact, put yourself forward. Put yourself on that agenda. When you see bad behavior, exclusive behavior and language, call it out. Ask your organization to declare their, the wage gap and track it and make it an executive agenda item and just don't give up. Perhaps a little harder is to talk about for campaigning against violence. 
and it's hard to talk about, but really call it out. Understand when it's happening to women. Don't tolerate it. Bring it up. Tell someone. Support those women. Really, you know, don't accept violence in physical, mental, or any form. So really call that out and support the women in your community and the women that you know that may be facing that. Support organizations that are shelters. Mary's Place is a great example of that. So really seek out those things and be active and proactive about those. And finally, do what we're doing tonight. Celebrate women's achievements. Celebrate their journeys, the barriers that they've overcome, and shine a light on their triumphs. So create awards programs tap somebody on the shoulder, make sure you reward and recognize women's efforts, both it, in your community, in your school, and in your business. And so I hope this evening we have left you inspired and energized. Certainly we've had some amazing speeches from some badass women over there for sure. <laughs> And we hope that next year, on the 8th of March, we'll be celebrating your achievements in being bold. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this podcast of Speakers Forum, featuring Seattle's celebration of International Women's Day. This event took place at Town Hall Seattle on March 8th. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon.